cliffcentral.com. Uh, Rich Mulholland is on the line, and we're going to talk to him this morning, the reality check. Hey, Rich, I heard that you um, you had a terrific time in Iceland. Where is he? Is it on the phone? Skype. Well, he's on Skype. I've got Skype on here. Why isn't he coming through? Hello. Hello. Oh, Hello. Th- oh there you are. I, I'm shouting into the wilderness, and finally you howled <laughs> back. Hiya, Rich. I'm fantastic, thanks. And Iceland was amazing. Oh, man, I just saw some pictures. It looked like you two had the best time. I mean, pictures will always show you having the best time, but uh, uh, we really did. It's a great place, except that um, driving a manual car on the other side of the road is a lot harder than driving an automatic car on the other side of the road because the gears move the other different way. Arm. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just a different arm because like an automatic is a different arm, but you still like moves things in the same direction when you set it. But you're now going right to go into uh, up gears instead of left to go up gears. So even the direction is different. And I also drove us around a uh, traffic circle the wrong direction once, which um, nearly led to an end of my marriage. (laughs) And and did you cause any accidents? I came close because what I kept on doing is I kept on lining the car up where I am in the middle of the road. Uh But that put Jasmine on the other side of the road. (laughs) Facing oncoming traffic, because <laughs> I would I would line myself up perfectly how I'm used to, where I'm just a little bit to the right of the middle of the road. Listen, she'd <laughs> be like, oh, "Holy crap!" I know you have to get a, a special international driver's license because they won't rent you a car in most of these countries unless you do. But that doesn't mean you've done the the, the practice. You have, it doesn't mean you've actually been in the car with the driver's side and on the other side and driven on roads where you have to be on the other side and it's damn confusing yeah 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 i mean i've done it a fair amount nowadays although i must say i never i I got an international license but Mm -hmm. i've never taken anywhere i hand everybody a little south african card thing and they're always fine with it but um yeah i find if if you are going to do it automatic makes life a whole bunch easier even if you, I think if you drive stick in South Africa, I would say, I mean, I don't ever, uh, uh, but I would say get an automatic when you travel. Yeah. There's no need yeah. to, you don't need to be changing gears unless you're Lewis Hamilton. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Please, so, I, could do a, I could do a whole chat on that. So what's, uh, what's happening? What do you got uh, bothering you this week? Um, Andreas Pavel. Who's that? He's the guy who invented uh, portable stereos. He's oh, basically yeah? the guy that made it. He was like sitting at home one day and he had earphones, but he wanted to walk around and he was bummed that he couldn't uh, take everything with him. So he basically invented a portable rig. It was like 1973 yeah. where he could like stand up and walk about. And I think this has led to some problems in society. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan. I have my earphones everywhere. Like I've got so many different sets in case batteries run out and stuff. Is this the but, guy? Um, he's the one who invented hmm? what? Those boom boxes that people used to carry on their shoulder in the 1980s? No, he basically wanted to have high fidelity audio when he traveled. So he had a setup at home where he could put on really, really nice headphones. Mm-hmm. But then when he was out, all he could take was a boom box. And right. he wanted the ability to be able to turn a device into a portable uh, kind of portable player that you could clip onto your belt or something and then plug in a pair of headphones and have ah, okay. high quality uh, audio when you went. And so he was basically the guy, he was like the, like the forefather of the you know iPods and, and things like that that we have today. So why is he a social problem? So I was got involved in a conversation on uh, LinkedIn the other day 
And it was around this idea of uh, the debate they were actually having was between Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours for, you know, it takes to master something. Yeah. And the guy was taking, he was challenging this somewhat. And he was saying, you know, somebody else uh, says about it just takes 20 hours to become proficient in something. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I buy that and I buy there's a difference between mastery and proficiency. And I think we need both to some degree in different aspects of our life. But he was talking about his morning routine. You know, he wakes up every day and he does two hours of learning and he learns for two hours. And this is how he becomes proficient in many things. And I think there's a disconnect between learning and proficiency. And I think that maybe it's become such a cultural trend that we become learning machines. So we have the ability to plug in our podcasts and our, you know, audiobooks and things like this and literally listen all the time and learn all the time. And even a show like yours, I mean, a show like yours, I find, and I know your caller earlier mentioned this as well, but it really is a learning thing. Like I, like I listen to learn. I, I pick up information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering if what happens if we're having knowledge, if knowledge fatigue is creating action paralysis. That we're learning so much shit and we're filling our brain with so much stuff that we're not actually giving ourselves any time to process that. Because I'm working with a couple of people at the moment, kind of mentoring them and stuff. And they've all read all the books and they're all listening to all the right podcasts and doing all the right things. But they're actually, well, listening to all the right things, but they're doing nothing. They're not changing because they're so hell bent that what if the next guy who, you know, maybe I should listen to this book or maybe I should read this or do that uh, before I act. And I, I'm wondering if we're not doing this to to our detriment. You know, was it simpler when there was one textbook that we would learn? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe life, uh, you know, human brains, and this is where we've got to take uh, stock of kind of where we're at. Maybe we can only deal with so much new information on a daily basis. Maybe because our ancestors were not used to the stream of information that we have now. And there was no way that you could learn as much as you do in a given day now in a lifetime in 1700 and something. I mean, people used to pick up a, a, a pamphlet and it would, it would give them more information then uh, than they could probably handle. And, and now we've got just any amount of information about anything at any given time. There's just no way our brains are evolutionary pre- evolutionarily predisposed to handle that. Of course, um, um, and they're not, right? So when we teach presentation theory, we talk about the cognitive demands. Yeah. And I mean, just even on basic short-term learnings, uh, you can only hold about six facts in your brain at any given time until it's actively processed. And at that point, it goes from your short-term memory, from your kind of RAM into mm-hmm. your hard drive, you know, your SSD, your HDD, your hard drive memory. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's remembered when it's, when it's linked to an existing memory. So like if you take Ray, uh, Ray was on earlier, and he was yeah. talking about leukemia, and he was telling us about how um, easy it actually is and not painful and how all of us can go and do this. And I guarantee you, at that point, every single person listening, driving their car, they were like, I'm doing this. I, I, this is – got to go, and I've got to call this number, and I've got to do the test and find out how I can help. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is then they, they've still got to drive another 20, 30 minutes to work, and there's a whole bunch of other things, and they learn a whole bunch more. And unfortunately, Ray and the leukemia gets parked off into their – it gets put into their queue, and your brain goes through what's called cognitive dumping, which is just where it randomly drops stuff out to make space for new knowledge because it's the only way it can cope. So it holds things in short-term memory, just like your, your phone or your computer does, until it can no longer hold it that. And it just says, okay, well, I'm going to drop this because you're not using it, and it will fill it with new information. 
And the other problem is is decision paralysis. So we know about this. We know that the more cho- the more data you have about making a choice, the less likely you are to make one. So there was a research done with guys where they uh, had a person who needed hip re- uh, replacement surgery, and they gave the doctors all the facts and said, "Would you go for surgery?" And they looked at all the facts and said, "Yes." And then just the day before, they said, "Hold on a second. There's one more pill that could potentially be available. Do you want to try it?" And 50% of the doctors said, yes, we will try it. Mm -hmm. So that was cool. So when they were given one more choice, because it's a very evasive surgery, they said that. So then they said, well, I wonder what happens if we give them two choices. So instead, they turned around and they said, okay, so in fact, you know, there's actually two more pills that we could try before going. Now, Mm -hmm. you would think before going for surgery, you would think in this case, what would happen is even more doctors would say, well, let's try the alternatives. But what actually happened is significantly less doctors did. Because now they've got too many choices to make. There are too many things, and they're going through decision paralysis. And I think this happens to some degree with knowledge. And I think we need to learn less and act more. I mean, at the moment, I'm listening to a bloody book on astrophysics, uh, just so I can have a conversation with my son. I have no idea what's going on. Anyway, I was listening to an article uh, that my friend Pierre Duplessis posted. He's a really, really smart guy. He's got a great newsletter. Mm-hmm. And um, he was talking about – the article was on silence – and on the importance of silence and uh, how little we utilize it. And uh, kind of two of the quotes that I liked were this, and you know I'm the least religious person in the world, but one was by Mother Teresa. And when asked about what she says when she prays, she answered, I don't say anything, I just listen. And then when they asked what God said to her, she said nothing, he just listens as well. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and the idea is sometimes we just have to have nothing going on. The irony is that um, this was all about a book on silence. Uh, this passage was taken from a book on silence, and I downloaded the audio book of it yeah, last night. So there's no silence <laughs> going on there. What I'm curious yeah. about, though, is, I mean, you mentioned how this, this um, audio, that this guy who invented essentially the, the listening device that you could carry around, the portable listening device, and how that's taken away silence from us. I, I often think that most people are very uncomfortable with silence. People don't so, People don't seem to be... Now, and, and, and perhaps it was different, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. But when people are in a situation where there's silence, they almost become very anxious because it's like you're, 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 you need the noise. There needs to be something going on, music or, you know, right. if you think about how people socialize. When you and, well, to- I guess to some degree music could be the silence, right? I think the silence in, uh, relative to what I'm talking about right now is the absence of information. Mm. The absence of adding more content for our brains to process. So when I write, I have an instrumental playlist, and it's got a lot of soundtracks and things like that. And I don't like writing in silence, but I do like having just some sort. I don't like having lyrics or things like that. And I think that you know, before I came on, you gave the listeners a song, that smelly guy, mm. so smelly po- mix, smelly Malone, bum or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And. Um, uh, that actually gave people time to stop and process. So maybe some people did sit there and think about what Ray had said and think, okay, cool. Yeah. M- maybe they did actually just send themselves a little email or a message or say, okay, I'm going to go get checked. And the song gave them time to do that. But had maybe we jumped straight from Ray to me or to something else, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And I think having those little cog- cognitive breaks, which could be in the form of a song, are possibly helpful. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and, and make a, make a bit, bit of time in your day for the silence, right? Uh, clear your, exactly. clear your thoughts. And this is why so many people are turning to things like transcendental meditation, 
Um, I'm certainly seeing a lot more people who are spending time doing non-information things in a world where we're so busy learning, as you've already pointed out, where everybody's under such pressure to be on top of all the info that's out there that they don't take the time to actually let their brains sort and file this stuff. The only silence you get is when you sleep. Right. You know, when I catch people, I, I think the job is not to learn. Learning was never the end state. The end state was to have information in our brain that made us better. And when I catch somebody, if I'm doing a talk or a speaking gig and I catch somebody writing down, I always say to them, I hope you're not writing down notes because you're not going to do anything with notes. You know, this isn't like you take notes at school because you've got to answer an exam, but no one's going to test you. I said, I hope you're writing down actions. The only thing that matters to me is that somebody walks away from a talk with a, uh, I give with a couple of checkboxes with actions. You know, I want to do this. I need to do that. And I think we need to get better at, at taking any information we have. And instead of hearing it as, oh, I want to write that down. I just heard that. What we have to be writing down when we learn something new is the action that we're going to take as a result of it. Because only when you start doing that will we start making the meaningful changes. I love it. So I'm going I'm to give you a, a moment to download all of this that Rich has said to us. Rich, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, man. Fantastic. Let cool. it. Bye. Cliffcentral.com.